proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I'm your host, along with uh, Chris and Zach, as we continue in our Doctrine of God series. Uh, gentlemen, let's talk about this week's uh, kind of shenanigans. If uh, you haven't been paying attention to the news, apparently there was a uh, rather large march in Washington. Was. Uh, were any of you there? I was not. I'm unqualified to speak on such matters because I do not have the proper anatomy to even voice an opinion on anything to do with women, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. I'm sorry. I'll get, maybe I'll get emails on that one. <laughs> Chris, you're being quiet. Were you obviously there? Oh, oh no, yeah. Uh, Zach spoke for me. <laughs> Well, there's obviously a lot going on in the world, and I think uh, as we kind of look out over the span of time, uh, it's pretty impressive to see the uh, out-of-controlness of the uh, the current state of, uh, of protest, shall we say. There were some pretty interesting signs and uh, statements. Uh, one of the ones that caught my attention uh, was one that was aimed at Mary. Did any of you guys see that one? I did see that. I did. Yeah, it, it actually said how much better it would be if Mary had uh, not basically, if she would have had an abortion. I Yeah, I saw that. And that just really got my attention that we live in a society that not only is celebrating abortion, but the abortion of, uh, of the incarnated Christ, right. you know. And uh, what does that say? What do you guys think that says about our culture? Wow. Um... I mean, Romans 1, you know, people, people know there's a God, they suppress the truth, and they're, they're angry at God, really, you know? Yeah, it really does just testify to the hatred of, uh, of the world towards Christ, towards God, that uh, there's no neutrality, that uh, when it comes down to it, they would be happy if God just was not there. Kind of like uh, looking at that statement, the fact that they almost celebrate the fact and, and wish that God was not there. Um, it, it clearly, as you said, Zach, pulls out Romans 1. And what's a shame is that um, just in general revelation, as we discussed uh, a couple of weeks ago, the fact that God is on display and they're suppressing that truth. And to suppress something means you you have access to it. And, and here they're suppressing it. We know they're suppressing it because of the fall, Genesis 3 clearly describes. Um, and yet, it's not just that they're acting as God does not exist. That specific sign says, you know, basically... How he much, does, and he shouldn't. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And right. It, it would be better if God didn't exist. And, and so it's not even suppressing the truth anymore as just, uh, excuse me for saying it this way, just popping your middle finger at God and yeah. saying, we don't need you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it just really is astounding to think this is this is the culture we're raising kids in, right, fellas? Yeah, it's a scary thought. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a crazy crazy culture out there. That's for sure. Well, why don't we turn our attention to uh, the God that this culture is suppressing, as you uh, stated earlier in Romans one, and let's look at the shorter catechism, my my confessions catechism, uh, question four, which. I think does a very um, great job in defining God. I mean, the idea of defining God itself is just uh, mind-blowing, but they do a good job in descripting out um, the character aspects of God. And the Catechism says, what is God? God is a spirit. He's infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and His wisdom, being, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And it's that first word, God is, you know, that first word, spirit that I want to kind of camp out on for a minute. What does the catechism mean when it says God is a spirit? Um, I think it's p- partially talking about the fact that he is a, a personable God. He's got a personality. He's capable of communicating with us in a way that we understand. Um, he's uh, relational, if I, if I can use that word. Um, so he's not just a an abstract energy out in the universe that's just often, you know, he's unreachable or whatever, but he is he is personal. Well, isn't, isn't that what people often think, though, when yes. they think of spirit? It's just an abstract force. Right. You know? He's just up there. We, we can kind of know about him, but we can't really uh, have a relationship with him. He's distant, you know. And, and the yeah. cat, Go ahead, Chris. Uh, you know, just to piggyback off of uh, what Zach was saying, you know, that there is a definite uh, form of existence that, has, that God exists in, that he's not just an, an energy or a force, but uh, at the same time different than us, uh, knowable but different than us. And, and, and he's different in us in the way he displays emotion. He's different in us in his will. <laughs> um, and in that ca- same catechism, it really gives us an insight into the two different categories, the communicable attributes and the non-communicable attributes of God. Um, the first three um, list his, his non-communicable, the things he holds on to himself. He does not share with his creation. Um, and obviously there is listed his eternality. And, and, and such. And as you look at that, you realize that this God is totally other. Uh, there's nothing like him, right? Yep. Um, but as you turn to the communicable attributes, things such as power and, and uh, holiness, what is it saying when that he communicates these attributes with us? And, and what does that say about us, I guess? Uh, one thing that jumps out at me is um, it becomes apparent that he is so different because we do share some of these attributes, but they're so, not only are they limited, but they're marred by sin, you know. But even if you think like pre-fall, Adam and Eve have these attributes as well, but even before sin came in, they're still not to the extent that God has, you know. They're still not um, all-knowing, right, because you've got the tree there. Um, They're not all-powerful. So even pre-fall, there's really um, a, a huge difference between creator and creature, it seems like. I mean, even like the idea of, of you know, how fickle women can be, can you know, and, and God's unchangeable. And here Eve, she's created in God's image. Mm-hmm. She has a will. She, she, has, um, she has preferences, but she's not unchangeable. Right. And that's not, that's not a result of the fall. That's just that she's a created being. Yeah. And yet at the same time, there's some good qualities in the sense that God shares these with us, right, Chris? And and what would you say that says about us as image image bearers? Yeah, I was just thinking along those lines that uh, you know, as we are made in 
the Imago Dei and the image of God that he has, uh, just to put it in that same term, communicated to us, that there is uh, given to us these attributes that we find in God himself to a lesser degree, uh, but that we truly have them nonetheless, that uh, we know goodness, uh, justice, uh, we are rational, uh, we know how to express things like mercy and truth and wisdom. And so there are these things that uh, you see in the person of God, the nature of God, which we can uh, see given to us as well. And then there's obviously the incommunicable attributes, uh, his eternality, uh, his immutability, which we obviously do not possess. What about the idea of God having a will? Um, you know, and, and if you have a will and you're, and you're the sovereign God and the all-powerful God, then obviously, you know, in our reform circles, it clearly comes to the conclusion that his will will be done. Um, but there was, you know, a group, and, and I guess they still linger out there, the open theists, who, who tried to camp out on the idea that he, he has a will, but his will doesn't trump our will. And, I mean, in the silliness, in my opinion, of all of that discussion and, and missing out on really depleting God of his character, emptying God of his glory in a, in, in a very truthful sense, how damaging is it when we start to play with these characteristics yeah. of God? It's amazing to me um, how many people... Well, how many people aren't willing to say that uh, they're not going to make the jump and say God doesn't know the future because they see how silly that sounds, except for the open theists. They'll gladly say he doesn't know the future. Um, but mo most people are not going to be comfortable saying he doesn't know the future. But then if you push them to that logical conclusion, which is he's got a decree that's going to happen, um, th they're not willing to go that step, which is just weird to me because it's like if he knows the future and there's no chance of that future changing, then obviously it's because he's decreed the future, what's going to come to pass. Like, how does he know the future for certainty if he hasn't determined it? He's not just passively taking in knowledge. He's not learning as he goes, you know? And so a lot of people will be comfortable saying, yeah, obviously God knows the future, but I'm not really sure if he, you know, has definitely decreed everything that's going to happen. It, it seems like that's the logical progression. If he knows the future, it's because he's decreed it. Yeah, it's one of those things in Scripture, even, we find that God himself says sets him apart from us is that he alone knows the end from the beginning. Um, and it really even comes down to a matter of the deity of Christ, that one of the things that uh, Jesus mentions is that uh, he would tell his disciples what was going to happen in order that they might know, he says, that I am. And so it, it really, even when you start talking about uh, an attack upon uh, the, uh, the, the all-knowing nature of God, uh, that it really even comes down to attack other doctrines like the deity of Christ. So it's probably a lot more important, I think, than, uh, than some would make it out to be. So what do we do, guys, when um, people begin to talk about the fact that um, if God is spirit, and therefore that means that he has no material parts, no one's ever seen God, like John 1.18 says, what, what, what do we do with those when we say, people say, well, obviously Jesus is God and people have seen him. Uh, how do we bring those, all those things together? I think this is bound up in the mystery of the Trinity and the Godhead, 
um, and even can be understood through what has been revealed in God's Word concerning the Trinity and uh, and kind of the, the nature of God in that way, that some of these things that seem on a superficial level to be contradictory really aren't contradictory at all. And I think this is one of the problems that we run into when we try to look at the attributes of God we see in ourselves and say, well, okay, well, that's what God is like. Rather than beginning with who God is and how he has revealed himself in his word and then working out from there, we, we try to begin with us and work our way back to God rather than looking at who God is and then from there understanding those things in ourselves. I think that's where part of like the healthy level of mystery comes in, like what we talked about um, last week. You know, there's there's things we can know and things that we are things that are a lot easier for us to understand because we are uh, we do share some of his attributes in a limited sense. Um, but then some of the things uh, are going to have to be chalked up to mystery just because he is different than us. You know, well, a classic example of this would be uh, Scripture says God is love. Yeah. And what people will do is they take our fallen human understanding of love and project that onto God and say, well, this is what God is like, rather than saying, no, we need to look at God to understand what love is and let that inform us of what love truly is, rather than trying to impose our fallen understanding upon God. Isn't that why the Catechism opens with the doctrine of Scripture Mm -hmm. before it moves into the doctrine of God, because it wants us to make sure that we're allowing God to dictate to us who He is, rather than us imposing on Him who we say He is. Yep. And that seems to be a, a, a regular problem with humanity. humanity. We want to impose on God uh, our perspective of who He should be, rather than listen to Him as He describes Himself to us. Yeah, thankfully... Uh... Thankfully, when I have like a, a broken view of love, you know, because of sin and we see like uh, people and even ourselves to some extent have, you know, uh, not a perfect view of what love is. Thankfully, that's not true about God, you know. So instead of being yep. frustrated, like, oh, man, I wish God was exactly like me. I'm really thankful he's not exactly like me, you know. What kind of God would that be? <laughs> yeah, I think it kind of if you want to picture it this way, uh, there's two different ways of uh, of approaching our understanding of God. Are we trying to work at that from human reason and philosophy towards the Bible, or are we trying to come to God's Word and that allow that to work out into our understanding and our philosophy? Uh, one example of of that is is in Exodus chapter three verse fourteen, which talks about uh, God speaking to Moses. He says, "I am who I am." And that's obviously the self-existence of God. And what one of the things that sets in motion then forward is that since God is uh, absolutely existence, you know, he, he is this absolute existence, he is therefore the source of everything else that exists. And if we get things out of whack, everything begins to implode. Everything begins to fall apart. And I, I think coming back to you know, these, these attributes and in, in these things of God, we can't just say, well, God's powerful. No, God is eternally powerful. Yeah. God's unchangeably powerful. And that's why I think that rhythm of the catechism helps so much, is because he is eternally powerful, therefore all power comes from him, and he's the determiner of what that power looks like and how it should be used, as opposed to how I use it. Does that, does that make sense what I'm saying, you guys? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's helpful because... Um, 
even just taking a phrase like eternally powerful. So there's part of that that we grasp because we can relate to power. Like we understand what power is to some extent, but then when you throw the word eternally in front of it, that's when it becomes of another nature. And that's, that's why he's different than we are. And this is the problem when people protest and basically want to say, we don't need God. Well, it, you do need God because God is the source of power. God is the source of life. Yeah. God is the source of strength and hope. And, and without him, there is nothing. And, and that's what's so mind-blowing when we read signs like Mary should have had an abortion. It really is a matter of uh, allowing God to tell us who he is rather than trying to impose our own understanding of who God is upon him. How does, how does the church get in trouble in this? And when we look at, we're, we're, we're picking on people holding up protest signs who, who obviously are suppressing truth, who obviously don't know God. Um, they're choosing to live in sin as opposed to to know the living and true God. But I would say the church equally um, mistakes um, their they impose is probably a better word their view of God on the on the Bible as opposed to letting the Bible uh, dictate who God is. So can you give me some examples of how you see that in our current uh, state of the church? I think I think sometimes I think sometimes when we uh, are and I don't want to I don't want to sound like you know, not mission-minded, but sometimes when we're so concerned about making sure that people understand everything about God, we can make it too simple, you know? And in a culture mm-hmm. where everyone wants all the details and all the facts and, like, concrete evidence, and, and even I deal with this sometimes, just being afraid to use the word mystery, you know? And we try to boil him, boil God down to some concept that's so tangible and so easy to explain to a, a lost person, just in hopes that well, now they'll now they'll accept him because they can fully grasp him. When really, like uh, Chris said earlier, we need to start with Scripture and start with God rather than uh, trying to make him something that's easier to grasp. Let him describe himself, and then you come to things like eternally powerful, and that's that's beyond reason to some extent, you know. And so that's not going to be palatable for for the unregenerate person, but that nonetheless is who God is. And so I think sometimes the church get the church gets in trouble when we try to just squeeze him into a box just so he's more palatable toward others. Yeah, I think we are in a place where uh, we are so information savvy and we have so much information at our fingertips that uh, we really feel like we should be able to know everything. Um, I mean, if it's available to be known, I should be able to know it. And while we may know God. Truly, I think I said this last week as well, we cannot know him completely or exhaustively would maybe be a better way to put it. Um, And some people are really uncomfortable with that. Um, And when we come to God's word, we find so much revealed to us uh, about who God is, uh, about the Trinity and the nature of God. But there are some things that God doesn't choose to reveal, and I think one of the things that the church gets in trouble with is, like Zach said, trying to distill God down uh, to be completely understandable, Uh, and this is where people get into trouble with uh, uh, heretical analogies of the Trinity. Uh, We we just want to make it so easy to understand so that there wouldn't be any, you know, gasp mystery (laughs) about God— and end up belittling God and, uh, and really making him out to be something that he isn't. One of the things I think I see the church do a lot 
is we begin to uh, pit the attributes of God against each other. Um, yep. and, and Chris, you alluded to it earlier when we talk about the God is love, and that now trumps everything. Uh, when I was in seminary, I remember a professor saying that God's central attribute is his holiness. And that really kind of zinged me for a minute, because I think sometimes we want to make it, well, he can't be holy and loving at the same time, so love must trump holiness. Yeah. And, and, and when that professor really brought that to the attention, he says, you know, you just look at Scripture, the central attribute of who God is, is holiness. That's why he's separate. And yet th- his holiness is what he is, is, is the reason he sent his son. And, and, and so that we could worship him in his holiness and his perfection. And, and, and his holiness is what, what gives him the right for all of his glory. And, and as you really start to wrestle through that, you begin that, that, are we getting things out of whack when we take things like, well, God is love, and therefore that trumps everything else. And as you said, Chris, already, it's because we impose our understanding of love on God as opposed to say, well, we love because God first loved us, yeah. and therefore he defines love and not us. I think sometimes people reverse that. So God is love, that's a true statement. And I've heard someone else say, I can't remember who it was or I'd give them credit, but they basically said, God is love, but love isn't God. You know, And so that's the problem, people t- in today's culture. And we have to be careful that we don't fall in the, into the same trap of our broken understanding of love and saying, well, that must be that must be God. It's just like what we were saying earlier, you know, we can't impose that on God. Uh, the other, you know, thing, it's, it's funny. Oh, no, that's okay. The other thing I was thinking was, um, uh, now I forgot it. So go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, you know, it's funny, you know, we're kind of emphasizing the, the point about the confusion on the love of God and that particular attribute of God. It does seem that in our particular time and culture within the church, that that is probably, uh, probably the most misunderstood and uh, misused, if you can put it that way, uh, attributes of God as we talk about God uh, would be the love of God. That it's to the point where uh, some people have a hard time even imagining that God also has wrath. Yeah, I remember what I was going to say. So it went back to what Aaron mentioned earlier about pitting his attributes against one another. And mm-hmm. I, I found that sometimes when, if I'm trying to, you know, teach on something that has to do with the wrath of God, sometimes I'll get objections and say, well, but God is love. Like, he can't be both. And that just is, it's just a small view of God. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not complex enough, you know? Like, he, he's capable of being, because he's completely holy, he's capable of having love towards people and also wrath, you know? Um, we don't have to pit them against one another. Otherwise, it's a, a really small version of God. And I think sometimes even, you know, we talked about our misunderstanding of the love of God and imposing that, you know, kind of our the way we understand love and our, you know, fallenness and uh, projecting that upon God, that we do the same thing when it comes to something like wrath, that we think of this explosive outburst of anger and that the scripture, as it talks about the wrath of God, doesn't speak of it that way. It is a steady, controlled, set anger and hatred of everything that is contrary to the holiness of God. That it's not some type of explosive, uncontrolled uh, outburst of anger, but it's something that is settled. 
in God. And uh, so we tend to project a little of our uh, our experience of that kind of thing upon God as well. And this is why we have to understand God and his attributes beginning with his word, which is, uh, you know, the point of what we were talking about last week. So as you look at the different um, attributes of God and you see holiness and mercy and justice and truth, and and you begin to look at these, which of those would you say you've had the hardest time coming to terms with? For me, um, if you want to take like mercy and love kind of together, uh, I think I've had personally like an overreaction against the uh, because in in our culture, it, God is like he's he's like Barney, you know, he's like super loving. He just wants to have fun with everybody. The was, purple dinosaur, yeah, the purple dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> A shout out to Barney from my childhood. Um, but yeah, you know, we we look at him like he's so. Uh, or our culture looks at him like he's just this big, just a, a good guy who generally just wants to be nice to everybody and doesn't have any problems. And I think I, my fault is that I an overreaction against that is to forget the love that he does have and his goodness and his mercy towards sinners. Um, and, and because I'm trying to correct people and say, yeah, but he's he's judgmental, you know, he's uh, discriminating. He makes He makes judgment calls and he says, this is right, this is wrong. And sometimes I can camp out so much there, I forget that there is an element of truth to the fact that he is a completely loving God as well. Yeah, I think if there was any uh, particular uh, attribute of God that I probably would still struggle with, it's probably understanding the nature of God's will. Um, you know, there's been a, a lot of ink spent, you know, writing on this and uh, and discussing this, but, uh, but going to Scripture and, and understanding, you know, wh- why God has done what he's done and, and does what he does— um, and how his will relates with his other attributes is just a, a very deep and uh, and mysterious thing. And so I think that's probably the one thing that uh, I am still working on getting my mind around. It's funny because I think for me it's it's always been that holiness aspect of God. I think I can I can grasp the idea that he is holy other. I can grasp the idea that he, uh, his demand for perfection, but when you wrap that idea of holiness and then yet he's merciful, it, it's it's I I can be one or the other towards people, right? Yeah. And in my fallen nature, I can be merciful to some people, and I can be I can demand perfection from others. But God has those attributes perfectly, and it it seems holiness at t- sometimes in my mind. Um, I, I struggled early on. I viewed God as this, not the jolly green giant that you you saw. <laughs> it, him it was as. actually Barney. The I'm sorry, yeah, Barney. Yeah. <laughs> not the not as Barney, but as this great judge in the sky who was waiting at times to zap me mm-hmm. for messing up. And so I had this construed uh, view of holiness that was just lightning bolts. He was ready to send down because he couldn't wait for me to screw up. And that's not at all because you can't take that holiness away from his infinite mercy. And, and yet he has eternal holiness. And it's just like, man, how does all that come together? And I think, I think the church will clearly, and I say the church, I, I mean we as evangelicals, we have to be careful of, of the injustice we do to the attributes of God because of our preconceived um, yeah. ideas. Yeah. Uh-oh. You know, if, if I was to give an analogy of what I think happens a lot in our theology is, is I see it like a suitcase. And I can't remember, I've, I got this example from somebody years ago, 
but it's like when you're packing to go somewhere and you're putting everything into your suitcase and you think everything's finally in there and you close it and then you look around the side and there's a sock sticking out. And so you go back in and okay, you, you get that tucked in and you get it closed again. And you know, now there's part of one of your shirts sticking out the other side. I think that's what a lot of people end up doing theologically is they, they keep trying to get it all into the box and it, it ends up creating contradictions here. And then, okay, you resolve that, but now that creates a contradiction there. And one of the things that I love about the confessions is that they have been so carefully thought through and scoured over that I think they really do a great job of presenting what Scripture does teach, what it doesn't teach, and not going beyond that. Hmm. That's well said. I think uh, one of the other things that's just really difficult to wrap our minds around uh, as far as nature of God and his attributes would be uh, the impassibility, which is something that I've just recently kind of started to chew on and like think through, like how is it that we read about God having anger and jealousy and love toward people, and yet we know that he's not controlled by emotions in the same way that we are. That one, for me, is just really difficult to grasp. Yeah. I want to move us uh, to the next two catechism questions, which I think need to be taken together. And a question five says, are there more gods than one? The answer is, there is one only, the living and true God. Um, this is kind of a foundational Old Testament passage, right? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, you know, um, it, you look at the, the Shema and, and this idea that there's one God and, and it's to him only. But then you, you jump to the next catechism question. It says, well, how many persons are there in the Godhead? The answer is this, and there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power, and in glory. How do you, you looking from the Old Testament to the New Testament, uh, how do you rectify that for people who are saying, see, Old Testament, one God, New Testament, three gods, obviously they're not the same. Uh, I think I think sometimes we trip up when we don't understand that uh, in the Old Testament, God is still in the process of revealing himself fully. And so you've got like the progressive nature of God's revelation throughout the Testaments. And I think um, it might have been James White who actually kind of put it real concisely, which was that the doctrine of the Trinity is fully revealed in between the Testaments. So by the time New Testament is being written, you've got people that have an understanding of the divinity of the Holy Spirit and the divinity of Christ. And I think sometimes people miss that. And I think that's where uh, oneness Pentecostals will get off track because they go to the Old Testament, they look up the original Hebrew, and they say, look, this is all singular personal pronouns, so how can there be three? But they're missing the mark when it comes to the progressive nature of that revelation and that it's, it's still in the process and we have to take all of Scripture. So when you get to the New Testament, there's a lot more clarity. I mean, isn't that the beauty also of the creeds? Uh, you, you see things like the Nicene Creed, which was dealing with the heresy of Arianism, mm -hmm. and they very clearly wanted to say, look, wait a second, whoa, there's always been one God, and yeah. he's always been uh, existent in three persons. And, uh, and, and, as, and as you walk through that, you see that this, this, this sin or this heresy of, of Arianism can creep in, and it can creep in 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 all kind of evangelical conversations, yeah. <laughs> as you said, the the oneness Pentecostal 
or uh, in Sunday school class, yeah. <laughs> right, most dangerous, uh, in family devotion time. Mm-hmm. And we have to constantly be on guard that we're recognizing that this isn't a new concept, but it's one that was, like you said, Zach, progressively revealed because God is speaking to us in baby language, and He starts with us where we're at. Mm-hmm. And as He's progressing that more and more, He's revealing that truth. And by the time you get to the internet, intertestament periods, it is uh, understood. And, that, and as you move into the New Testament, it's... It's clearly um, still um, being owned and understood, but 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 accepted. Yeah, and the way that uh, the understanding of the Trinity that's revealed in the New Testament shines light on Old Testament passages for me, and makes them a lot more clear. Like when you have uh, in Genesis chapter one, "Let us make man." How do you understand that from just an Old Testament perspective? It's to me, it, it would be difficult. You know, when you when you fully when you realize that there is the Trinity at work in those verses, the "us" makes more sense. You know. So, kind of br- bringing all this to to some missional application, we've talked a little bit about the uh, the spirit aspect of God. We've talked about His communicable attributes, His His non communicable attributes, and and then we've talked about the Trinity. And as you look at that, what aspects would you say are most important for the church to make sure that they're teaching today? And obviously all of it, I get that, but you would say kind of on your, on your hit list, what are your, maybe your top two or three things that you say, hey, the church needs to start really making sure we're getting this right. So if you're a Sunday school teacher, you're a pastor, if you're a, a small group leader or whatever, you want to make sure that you're, you're setting the record straight on these truths. What, what would be your list? Uh, when I'm teaching Sunday school, um, I found that with, without having a, a robust doctrine of the Trinity, it's next to impossible for me to articulate the doctrine of the atonement. So without, without a father and a son, who, who is punishing Christ? And, and uh, you know, the obvious answer is, well, there's evil men there. They're, they're crucifying Christ. They don't like him because they're afraid of him. He's causing an uprising. And yeah, but how is he really atoning for sins if he's not bearing the wrath of the Father? And if he's also not God, then then what does that sacrifice mean for anyone? If if, if it's not a, a perfect sacrifice, you know. So without without the doctrine of the Trinity, it's it's really hard to explain the atonement. <laughs> I think beginning with just a, a good solid biblical approach to how we discuss the Trinity, um, how we discuss uh, the nature of God, um, I think is probably going to be the key place to start to make sure that we're actually being careful to stick with what the scripture has said without trying to uh, trying to dress it up or, or make it any more simple than the scripture has put it. Uh, because when we do, we often wind up in trouble and end up saying something that the scripture really doesn't teach. And I think aside from that, uh, teaching the work of the Trinity in redemption— um, putting it in the terms that we find it in Ephesians chapter one, you know, so beautifully laid out over that chapter that you know you have the Father choosing and predestining, you know, you have Christ coming and redeeming, and then the Spirit in that work then taking the work of Christ and applying it to those whom the Father chose. I think being able to see the three members of the Trinity uh, at work together and completely unified in the work of redemption uh, is very important. Yeah, I don't know of another way to even understand a passage like Ephesians 1 without a doctrine of the Trinity. I I have no idea how someone who would be a a oneness view or something would even explain the idea of 
uh, the father choosing the the son purchasing, you know, or the father choosing people in connection with the work of Christ and then the spirit applying that without a triune God. I don't know how that makes sense. I I don't know another way to understand it. Your guys' uh, dialogue about Ephesians forces me, I guess, to ask this question. What else does the, the doctrine of God offer hope in? You know, what does what else does it encourage you, especially in the culture we live in, where literally, as we said earlier, they're they're suppressing the truth of God and wishing him away. What does what does that doctrine of God give reveal hope? How does it reveal hope? God is not passive. God is not distant. Uh, We aren't deists. Uh, We don't believe in this divine watchmaker who just set everything in motion and then stepped away to let it play out. That the doctrine of God in Scripture teaches us that God is relational, he is knowable, he is powerful, gracious, loving, merciful, and he is here at work in the world to seek and save the lost. And I often will use the terminology that, you know, as Jesus calls us to mission in the world, that he's not just sending us out and saying, hey, good luck with that. I hope it goes well, that we are really going out on mission with Jesus, that the Spirit of God is presently at work in the world to redeem, and that we get to go and join him in that mission. It's his mission, not ours. And I think viewing it in that kind of manner is, uh, to me, very encouraging. Uh, And uh, so in that way, I see the doctrine of God as a a great encouragement to me in mission. Um, The idea that God is doing everything for his own glory also can bring comfort uh, when, when there's maybe tragedy strikes and stuff happens that we don't understand. It gives us not not a specific answer for why, but the ultimate answer of, well, I I don't understand the immediate answer of why this is happening, but I know that ultimately God will get glory through that is is hugely comforting for people that are suffering and um, going through something that they really can't wrap their minds around. They don't understand why God would do this, but they do understand that he's going to get glory from it, and so that can bring great comfort in those situations. Fellas, i got to tell you, I really enjoyed today's discussion. Um, you know, everything from the Trinity um, to to the to the focus of, of God being a spirit, um, and it it really it's kind of exciting to think about the fact that the there is a God who has made Himself known. He is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer would say. He is speaking. He speaks through creation. He speaks through His image bearers, and most importantly, He speaks through Scripture. And I'm just encouraged, even as we've had this discussion, to remember there's a God in the Old Testament who spoke in the plural, let us make man in our image, and yet it's that same God who was was there at Jesus' baptism and the same God who were commanded to baptize others in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and that continuity and consistency, and that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, there's hope. And there's hope for the protesters in the there streets yeah. because yeah. he's he's God and he's sovereign and his will be done. Amen. 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 All right. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com. And be sure to like our Facebook page.